just when things seem to be going so well. In faithfulness to his promises, the Lord has blessed the descendants of Abraham, rescuing them from Egypt and bringing them to Mount Sinai, where he has entered into a unique, exclusive, one-of-a-kind relationship with them. The Lord has promised to be their God, and the Israelites have promised to be his people. Then, just as Moses is receiving the instructions for the tabernacle so that the Lord can live with his people, they go and do something that jeopardizes the whole thing. Will there be a happy ending here, or only destruction in the wilderness? Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly message from Gamia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks clearly to you in this message. This week's text is yet another well-known story from Exodus, the incident of the golden calf. This failure of Israel to remain faithful so soon after the covenant has been ratified is seen as typical of their faithlessness. However, what we find is that their unfaithfulness contains an invitation to reflect on the Lord's character. The Bible reading tonight comes from um, Exodus chapter 32, uh, verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow, Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Uh, You're all familiar with uh, the genre of film known as the romantic comedy, right? Uh, Boy and girl meet uh, and they fall in love and it looks like it's all going to turn out into this wonderful happily ever after until about three quarters of the way through the film when something happens that jeopardizes the relationship, right? Perhaps it's a secret that one of them has been keeping for the whole film or perhaps one of them just does something silly or something happens and the whole thing is called into question and we wonder if there's actually going to be a happy ending to the story. And if it's a good romantic comedy, then there is a happy ending. And while the screen adaptations of Exodus rarely are filed under romantic comedy, I wonder if the, the kind of the narrative arc might not be a little bit helpful for us to understand what's happening in these closing chapters of Exodus. So in the story, of course, God has been faithful to his promises and has blessed the people of Israel and has brought them out of Egypt with a mighty display of power and brought them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai has entered into this exclusive, uh, special, uh, formal relationship where they make promises to each other, where the Lord promises to be their God and they promise to be his people, uh, to represent him in the world, to participate with him in his plans to restore everything. And it looks like there's going to be a really, really happy ending. Uh, Moses goes up the mountain to receive instructions from the Lord to build a tent for him so that he can move in with his people. It's all going 
going to plan. And as Moses is up the mountain, the people do something stupid that jeopardizes the whole thing. And so there is in the story a moment of drama here where the, the, the things that have been going so well all of a sudden fall to pieces. Uh, and there's an enormous threat to whether there'll be a happy ending to the story at all. And while that's a fairly helpful way for us to think about this story, I'd actually like to, to kind of work our way through the text by returning again uh, to those four questions that we've encouraged people to use when they read the Bible uh, together, right? When you read it with somebody else. And so we've encouraged people to ask four questions. Uh, what stands out to you? Uh, what questions do you have? Uh, what is God inviting you to do? And who will you tell? Uh, and uh, I'm not going to answer the fourth question because I'm telling you. So I'm just going to deal with the three questions. And, and not just to remind you about the uh, kind of a helpful methodology to read the Bible, but perhaps more importantly, because this is how, as I was reading this passage, I ended up kind of going through it. There was something that really stood out to me, and then there was a question that was raised, and then an invitation that I believe that was given uh, for all of us to consider as we uh, have a look at this story that is told and retold and reinterpreted again and again and again all the way through Scripture. I mean, this is one of those great acts of unfaithfulness, Israel and the golden calf. So let me begin, though, by pointing out to you what stood out to me as I read through the story again. And it's quite simply the contrast between how God responds at the top of the mountain and what's actually happened at the foot of the mountain. So at the foot of the mountain, the people have come to Aaron and they have said, hey, listen, we don't know what happened to Moses. Will you make us a god? Uh, and it seems, it's a little confusing, but it seems like what they're asking is not to make them a different god. They still want to worship the Lord, but they just want an idol. They want some sort of physical a representation of the Lord. And so Aaron says, bring me your, your old gold, and uh, they do, and he makes a golden calf, and all the people go, look, this is, this is the Lord. He brought us out of Egypt. And Aaron goes, this is a fantastic idea. Let's have a festival. And this is all happening at the foot of the mountain, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But God's reaction is completely different, isn't it? If you jump ahead in, in verse 7, the Lord says to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. If you jump down to verse 9, the Lord says, I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." And I thought it's kind of strange that God responds uh, with destruction of something that, when you get right down to it, seems to me to be a little bit of a kind of a sloppy, ill-disciplined, lazy sin. I mean, if you've read through the whole Old Testament and you wanted to find an example of the people of Israel being completely rebellious and utterly wicked and extraordinarily evil, you wouldn't turn to Exodus 32. 
I'd I turn your attention to just about anywhere in First and Second Kings, when the people of Israel actually brought in idols from other nations, other gods, and set them up in the temple and worshipped them alongside the Lord, where they filled the city of Jerusalem with bloodshed of the innocents, where the prophets came and railed against the injustices that kind of flowed everywhere in society. That's where I would look. This seems like this blundering attempt by the people to kind of, I don't know, do something. Did you notice that? It really stood out to me that this seems such a, just a lazy sin. They weren't even thinking it through. I mean, what was Aaron thinking, first of all? Hey, make us gods. And Aaron just goes, yeah, all right, sounds like a good idea. Like, seriously? Give that five seconds thought and you'll probably remember it's not. So I was, really, I was really struck by the fact that God's response is, is, is destruction and wrath, even though the people have, on a scale of one to a hundred, not done something extraordinarily wicked. They've just been a little bit lazy when it comes right down to it. And I'll come back to that. The thing, though, that, that then led to my question was if God is so concerned for what's happening, why didn't he tell Moses about it before it happened? Like, why didn't God somewhere in, I don't know, chapter 28, just kind of pause for a moment and say, hey, Moses, I know that this stuff is important, but um, why don't you go down the mountain because your brother's about to do something really stupid that's going to jeopardize the entire relationship, and uh, when you sort that out, come back up and we'll kind of kick off where we left off. But God waits. He waits until he has done all of his instructions and then says to Moses, oh, by the way, the people have turned away from me. I thought, why didn't God raise that a little bit earlier? And, and, you know, if if you've been around the church over the course of the year when we encourage you to read the Bible with other people, we we encourage you not to get uh, stuck on trying to answer the questions, right? We want to get to the invitation part. Because the problem with a lot of questions in the Bible is that they don't have very clear answers. And so you can happily spend hours and hours and hours trying to figure out what the answer to the question is, end up no closer than you were at the beginning, and never get to the invitation of God. But I did wonder to myself, is is the fact that God waits till the end, is that indicative? Is, is Is it some sort of indication that even God's plans will not be halted by our sinfulness, that He's going to see His plans through regardless of of what happens? Or is it simply the fact that the people of Israel were bound to be unfaithful? It was only a matter of time. It's not as if God had stopped them here, that they would have been just perfect for the rest of the Old Testament. You get the impression, don't you, from the people of Israel, that if it wasn't here, it was going to be in chapter 33. And if it wasn't in chapter 33, it was bound to happen in chapter 34. Like, this is not a people who are so close to perfect. This is their one slip-up. You follow me on this? But both of these then led me into the invitation. Uh, if, If there's this discrepancy or some sort of contrast between God's reaction and what seems to happen, and if God lets that happen nonetheless, then I think that part of the invitation is an invitation to reflect a little bit further on the character of God. As as we'll see when we look at the solution to this crisis, right? This crisis that comes into the relationship that threatens the happily ever after is ultimately solved by God and by His character. And it's His character that I think is so important for us to recognize here in this passage. 
And I think there are three components of his character that we're invited to reflect on. The first is the fact that God is holy. And here I'm talking about his moral purity, his moral purity, how uh, holy he is, how pure and stainless and spotless he is. And I think that's really important when it comes to considering what the people did. And let me see if I can, if I can make this, uh, if I can illustrate it for you. Uh, have you ever been to um, like a school fete or a school fair and you've gone into the art display? right? And maybe you've got a brother or sister, maybe you were in uh, lower primary at the time, and you wander in, and there's the, you know, the year one and two's artwork. And you see the blue ribbon artwork. And you look at the blue ribbon artwork in year two in your local school, and you think, that's a pretty good painting for a year two student. They've got a pretty good grasp of color and pretty decent proportion. It actually looks like it's supposed to be what it is, like this is all really, really good, right? Uh, and if you compare it just to the other art in the room, you're going to go, that's, a, that's an extraordinary piece of art. But if you take that year two blue ribbon winning piece of uh, art and you take it to the New South Wales gallery and hang it on the wall, I'm sure someone is going to go, you know what? That looks like it was done by someone in year two. Because when you compare the best that someone can do in year two with the grand masters of art, there's going to be a difference, isn't it? The question becomes, who do you compare yourself to? So let me come back to the question of, of, of the people of Israel and their sin. I, when I think about my own life, I am, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm a sinner, but I am not an arch sinner. Like, I'm not, I'm not one of the big ones, right? Like, if, if you kind of ask me on a scale of one to a hundred, where a hundred are like the worst sinners ever, and the, the ones are like the really super saintly people, right? I'm pretty beige, when it comes to sin. I'm currently not planning any enormous rebellion against the Lord. I don't currently have any schemes of tremendous wickedness and evil that I hope to unleash on the unsuspecting world. Most of my sins are actually kind of lazy, sloppy, indisciplined sins. Little things, not particularly critical in the big scheme of things. But the problem is when I compare my sinfulness to other people who are also not arch sinners, but who are a little bit beige in their sin, we can end up feeling like, you know what? I'm okay. It's not actually that big a deal. We're all kind of in the, you know, high teens. How bad is that? The problem is we're not comparing ourselves with one another. We are comparing ourselves with the Lord, who is perfectly holy. And when you compare our beige sins to the perfection of God, then it becomes very clear that even our beige is quite a dark black. And the distinction between a one and a 100 is to some degree immaterial because we are all of us, every one of us, sinners. And if I only compare myself to other people, I may miss out on the holiness of God. And here, the Lord's response is appropriate because the people have been unfaithful in their relationship, not with each other, but with Him. 
And so I think we are invited to reflect on the holiness of God and to reflect perhaps on who are we comparing ourselves to and have we become quite comfortable, thank you very much, with our kind of petty, pedantic, not particularly important, nor world-changing sins. And if we have, what's our response? I think a second characteristic that, the, that we are invited to reflect upon is God's faithfulness. And this one is a, is a, is a little bit tricky, I think, to, to kind of pick out. So again, let me try to illustrate. Um, perhaps uh, for those of you who are parents or for those of you who have had these kinds of conversations with parents or have thought at all about the importance of discipline, uh, you know that parents uh, seek in their best moments to discipline their children because they love them. If they didn't love their children, if your parents didn't love you, they would just let you do whatever you wanted because they wouldn't care if you turned into a spoiled, rotten git of a person who irritates everyone and nobody likes. They wouldn't care if you had no boundaries and no respect for yourself or others or other people's property because they wouldn't care. In fact, discipline is an, ex is an extension of a parent's love. Not always done entirely perfectly, but it's ideally out of that sense of love. Here in this passage, we actually see the faithfulness of God exhibited in His willingness to take seriously the people's unfaithfulness. He is faithful ultimately to punish the people. If you read the rest of the story, um, Moses ends up speaking to the Lord and goes down and, and smashes the tablets of the covenant, kind of realizing that the relationship has totally been broken, uh, goes back up to the Lord, and eventually there's a plague that breaks out. And like there's, there's punishment that comes. And we kind of read that and we think, oh, wow, God was a little bit kind of angry and, and vengeful. But I just want you to think for a moment about how much worse it would have been if Moses had gone down the mountain, had seen what the people had done, had smashed the tablets, had gone back up to the Lord and said, I can't believe it, but the people who just recently heard you speak the Ten Commandments have actually made themselves an idol, and I can't believe we've, we've, we've brought the whole relationship into jeopardy. It's just awful. And if the Lord had said, eh, whatever, like, wouldn't that have been worse? Than, than God punishing his people? Wouldn't it have been worse if God said, you know what, all that stuff I was talking about, about my promises to make everything right and to invite you into relationship with me so that the promises that I made to, to fix stuff and to undo sin and death, you know, all those things, it doesn't, it's just not that important. And your involvement in it, not that important either. So like whatevs, like we're good. Wouldn't that have been worse? And yet God here is so faithful to his promises, to his purposes, to restore and renew all things, that he takes their faithlessness very seriously. Where he takes this foolish, underthought, undercooked sin and treats it as seriously as it deserves. Because his promises and his purposes are equally important. And it invites us to consider again, how does God exhibit his faithfulness to us? Because we continue to be faithless and God continues to be faithful and his plans and purposes still matter a great deal. 
I think the third character that we are invited to reflect on is actually God's mercy. There's, um, there's some similarities between this passage, I think, and uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3, when uh, Adam and Eve eat the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, in both cases, it's not really an act of enormous wickedness and rebellion. It's just an act of folly. It's just really foolish for Adam and Eve to think that they knew better than God and to take the fruit that just looked good and they thought it would taste good as well, and that's all they did. Uh, and in both cases, we very quickly see that there are, there's blame calling and lying and all sorts of great stuff. When Moses comes down the mountain, if you haven't read the story, he says to Aaron, what were you thinking? Like, what happened? And Aaron goes, well, they just gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. It was a miracle. So we thought we'd hold a festival. You're like, really? That's the best you can do? You're supposed to be the high priest. And the same thing happens, of course, in, in the story in, in, in Genesis. But in both cases, I want you to notice that God actually doesn't act immediately. So to some degree, we might expect that in the book of Genesis, as soon as they picked the, the fruit, and as soon as they both tasted it, and as soon as they realized that they were naked, you kind of expect God to sweep through the garden as a hurricane, uproot trees and smash and destroy them both, and go, I told you not to eat from the tree. But that's not exactly what happens, is it? God shows up walking in the garden and says, where are you? As if God did not know where they were. As if God came back into the garden and thought, I left them here five minutes ago. Like, they're just, like, how do, you, how do you lose the only people on earth? Like, you know, the whole kind of thing. And, and when they come out and they say, oh, well, we were naked and, and, and we hid, God doesn't go, you're what? And destroy the garden. He says, who told you you were naked? And in both cases, the question invites confession, doesn't it? And I sometimes wonder what would have changed if, as soon as they ate the apple, as soon as they realized they were naked, if they looked at each other and said, we need to go and find the Lord and tell him what we've done. I wonder if the story would have ended any differently. And we find the same thing happens in Exodus chapter 32. God tells Moses that he is going to destroy the people. Leave me alone so I can destroy them. And, and listen to Moses' response. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, at first glance, it looks as if God got played by a quick-thinking prophet, doesn't it? But I want you to kind of play it out. Imagine the next scene when Moses goes down the mountain. Do you think God stood there for a moment at the top and then went, Oh, man, I just got played. I can't believe he did all that. Aren't you faithful to all your promises stuff? And I fell for it. I hate when I fall for that kind of stuff. Manipulated by a little... Is that what happened? I think that God telling Moses that he was going to destroy the people is actually creating space for Moses to step into that space, to ask for mercy. And notice that Moses does so by reflecting on God's character. As I said, when we look at the next passage, 
in this series, we will we'll see that the only way that this relationship and this crisis gets solved is by God and His character. And here Moses just speaks about the Lord's character, and lo and behold, there is mercy even in the midst of judgment. And all of this, of course, whether we're reflecting on God's holiness or His faithfulness or His mercy, invites the question of what is our response? Because if you read through the rest of the story in chapters 32 and the start of chapter 33, one of the things that's missing, hard to spot because it's not there, but one of the things that's missing is the repentance of the people of Israel. At the end of the story, they're, they're sad, and, and they take off their, their jewelry as a, as a sign of their sadness, but nowhere does it say that they actually repented or confessed their sin. Nowhere does it say that they acknowledge that the Lord is holy and that they were unfaithful. Nowhere does it say that they acknowledge that the things that God has invited them into were so important that they were, they were slack and lazy in it and they needed to do better. Nowhere do they appeal to His mercy and say, we, we really messed this whole thing up. Is there any chance in your grace and compassion that we can work this out? Moses does a lot of that work for the people, but it's ultimately the character of God. But it does raise the question then for you and I, what is our response to the holiness of God? What is our response to His faithfulness, to His plans and to His purposes? What is our response to um, His mercy? You know, when we fast forward the story, we find that Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread and took the wine that were symbols of the Passover meal in Exodus and reinterpreted them in Himself. Uh, making sure that we recognized how important the mission was. Important enough for him to give his life for it. Important enough that he might give us his holiness. Important enough that he might extend to us his mercy. In order that you and I might be able to be held in that mercy and respond to him, not in fear and condemnation, but in gratitude and hopefulness. As we reflect on the character of God, what is your response tonight? It is so easy when we are unfaithful to reflect only on ourselves. Yet we are invited to turn instead to the character of the Lord, His holiness, His faithfulness, and His mercy, and to confess our faithlessness in gratitude. If this has been encouraging to you, it would mean a lot to me if you'd share it with someone else. And as always, we'd love to hear from you as you hear and respond to the invitation of God. You can find us on Facebook or visit our website at gamiabaptist.org.au. This series will be broadcast on ACC TV. You can follow New Horizons TV on Mondays at 10 p.m., Thursdays at 8.30 a.m., and Fridays at 11 a.m. And watch previous sermons on our website. May your eyes and ears be open and your heart soft to the invitation of the Spirit to join in God's renewing work in Jesus. God bless.